Hello and welcome to the St Mungo's podcast. This episode's a little bit different. I was recently in Zermatt in Switzerland attending the Big Sick Conference, which was an incredible conference all about the early hours of resuscitation and there was a selection of incredible critical care resuscitationists from around the world giving some incredible talks. And while I was there, I was doing some podcasting and I tried to speak to as many of the speakers as I could and get a little summary of their talks. So this is a compilation of seven of those talks covering a wide range of topics from pre-hospital amputation through to manned flights to Mars. All will be revealed. I hope you enjoy. Okay, uh, my name is uh, Soren Rudolph. I'm an anesthesiologist and uh, trauma team leader from uh, Copenhagen. And you gave a great talk about resuscitating prior to intubation. Do you mind just kind of summarizing the main points of your talk for us? Yeah, yeah, of course. well, uh, from uh, what I've learned over the years is that uh, you, you sort of get the feeling uh, that uh, most patients uh, in critical airway management, you just have to have to intubate them right away. Um, but the thing is that uh, only a few select patients will need uh, intubation right now, otherwise they'll die. So my main point is that when you encounter these patients, do you have to... Uh, uh, you have to really stop and and do some thinking. And uh, from uh, teaching with a lot of the airway gurus, we came up with the, with the term, uh, the, the phrase of resuscitation before intubation. And this is what you need to do. You have to correct uh, what is killing a patient. And um, what's killing the patient is, is, um, is either hemodynamic uh, compromise, uh, severe acidosis or, or, or hypoxemia. And really coined uh, into the phrase the hop killers which is uh, a Scott Weingart term which is actually brilliant in, in my in my perspective um, so you need to take individual measures to to counter each of these uh, problems um, in hemodynamic compromise you need to resuscitate you need some fluid uh, you give uh, fluid resuscitation you start vasopressors um, and um, and you dose your your anesthetics smart. Um, go low on the uh, on the on the sedatives. Go high on the the uh, the paralytics. And and what I really want to 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 argue is that there's a, there's a role for a wake intubation in the, in the hemodynamic compromise, which is in my view underused. We tend to think of uh, a wake intubation only for selective airway pathology. Um, and that's the case of uh, the, the case of uh, hemodynamic uh, compromise. Is really also a case for awake intubation. Um, so, in terms of of, of uh, the hypoxemic patient, um, we talked about different measures of of uh, optimizing your not only pre-oxygenation but peri-oxygenation, uh, int- uh, peri-intubation oxygenation, um, uh, which is the what needs to happen when you you have to oxygenate all the way through through all different aspects of airway management through in, uh, induction laryngoscopy intubation and transition to uh, positive pressure ventilation so uh, different um, different techniques of that and I encourage people to to watch the lecture uh, online because it's it's going to be a little bit too lengthy to talk about this but there's different ways of optimizing standard techniques for, 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 for doing this much better. One thing I would emphasize is, is that using uh, 
the delayed sequence intubation, um, which is uh, administering uh, and a sedative which will keep the patient spontaneously ventilating, uh, so you can pre-oxygenate these patients that might impede uh, doing standard pre-oxygenation. So next up is Tim Harris. Tim will be well known to a lot of people. He's a professor of emergency medicine, but he is trained in intensive care medicine and pre-hospital medicine. And he has a lot of interests, but here he is talking about blood product resuscitation in trauma. At the moment, resuscitation for sepsis is about restoring organ perfusion as quickly as possible. Restoring for patients with blood loss, particularly trauma, we focus on restoring coagulation and stopping the bleeding, and then we move on to perfuse the organs. So we're sacrificing organ perfusion for restoring coagulation. This is achieved in several ways. One, we give a blood product-based resuscitation, so we store the coagulation proteins and haemoglobin. Two, we give tranexamic acid, so we reduce fibrinolysis. And three, we give a lower volume to the patients than the volume lost. This is called hypotensive or hypotensive resuscitation or permissive hypovolemia. This means that the patients have a lower blood pressure and a lower circulating volume than would be normal for them. The idea is that this puts less pressure over the bleeding points in the vessels, less hydrostatic pressure, and that by giving a smaller volume, we do, do not give the dilutional coagulopathy and dilutional anemia that are risked by crystalloid or colloid and we allow our patients to stay in this hypovolemic state for some time. The problems are we don't know how long some time is. The longer we leave our patients hypovolemic and hypotensive the more likely they are to get organ failure particularly kidney failure. The lower their blood pressure the more likely they are to get organ failure and we don't really know what blood pressure to aim at many of the studies have suggested 90 millimeters of mercury um, is where permissive hypotension begins but actually it's logical to say that for permissive hypotension we should target a pressure that perfuses the brain and heart and the easiest way to do that is to talk to our patients that are awake and see if they can respond to us and if they've got enough um, brain function to respond and interact with us, they've probably got enough perfusion for that initial 30-60 minutes of resuscitation. Trouble is, most of our patients are critically unwell and they're intubated and ventilated. So we then need to assess how we're going to, um, what, what blood pressure we're going to target for those. And I, I don't think we really know. Well, what's your current practice? So my current practice in the wake patients is to give them blood products until they're able to respond to me. If they're intubated and ventilated, it depends on age. If they're elderly, I'll actually target a pressure of 100, 110. If they're middle-aged, somewhere between 90 and 100. And if they're younger, 80 to 90. I will let those pressures go lower if the patient's awake and talking to me. And I probably could let those pressures go lower in patients that are intubated and ventilated. The problem is, I don't know for that individual patient when I'm producing harm. However, my own practice, my colleagues' practice, and all the trials I've read suggest that whatever we target, the body's homeostasis is a far more powerful um, force than medicine. And actually, 
while we might target a map of say 55, often the, the body will auto-regulate to, to a higher map. And we've seen this in the Bickle study where patients that received no fluids pre-hospital and patients that received an average of between 1,500 and 2 litres of fluid pre-hospital actually had the same blood pressure when they arrived. We've seen this in um, Richard Dutton's study where they targeted 70 millimetres of mercury or 100 millimetres of mercury and actually the achieved target was little different between the two groups and greater than the uh, ones that the study aimed for. I, I think the, the only other thing I'd like to say is that most of our evidence for missive hypotension predates our current resuscitation practice and we're really not sure what its current role is. I do think we've reached a point now where there is sufficient equipoise to propose a, a randomized clinical trial and I would very much like to see um, Europe run a randomized controlled trial to see if we can answer the question of how low can we go and how long can we go for. So sticking to the theme of trauma and resuscitation, our next speaker is Philip Spinella, who's a paediatric intensivist from America and served in the American military on the front line as a medic for a number of years. And he's one of the founding members of the Thor Network, which is an international collaboration researching blood product resuscitation and trauma. And here he is describing why whole blood is the preferred resuscitation fluid in trauma. Uh, I uh, presented uh, the topic of um, why uh, whole blood is an optimal uh, blood product to transfuse for patients with uh, traumatic hemorrhagic shock. And um, in summary, when you compare whole blood even to blood components when provided in a one-to-one-to-one -one -one unit ratio, whole blood is more efficacious because it's a more concentrated uh, product because when you give components, they're diluted by uh, citrate and additive solutions. Group O, whole blood is actually safer compared to components because when you only give group O red cells, there's no risk of a fatal hemolytic uh, reaction. Um, whole blood is uh, logistically uh, easier to provide and there's plenty of evidence to show that when you can resuscitate a patient more quickly uh, that has hemorrhagic shock, you have better outcomes. So there are logistical advantages of whole blood as well. And then when you consider you can increase the storage duration of cold stored whole blood to at least uh, 14, 15 days compared to warm platelets that are at five days, you can now provide cold stored whole blood at outlying hospitals that currently don't have platelets. And since there are many patients that bleed to death and die in the pre-hospital arena at hospitals that don't have platelets, by incorporating low titer O whole blood, you will now have increased availability of a platelet-containing product, which uh, has a good chance of improving survival. Do you mind if I ask you, uh, one of your last slides was the future yeah, mention a couple of things. Do you mind just, just mentioning those for our listeners? What, what, what should we expect? Sure. Um, well, if, if we agree that if the patient in um, hemorrhagic shock uh, is uh, better off with a whole blood or whole blood uh, equivalent uh, because they are anemic and are in shock and they are coagulopathic and need platelets and plasma, 
Uh, the future might be a dried uh, whole blood equivalent. Right now, dried plasma is, is licensed in, in Europe and will soon be licensed in the States. There is uh, one company in the States that's very close to li licensing a dried platelet product. So the only missing link now is a dried uh, red cell equivalent. And uh, we at, at Washington University in St. Louis are um, pretty far along with uh, developing a uh, synthetic red cell that's nanoparticle-based and is lyophilizable or can be freeze-dried. So if you combine a freeze-dried red cell, plasma, and platelet, you now have freeze-dried whole blood, which to many of us is the holy grail and uh, will really improve the logistic hurdles with providing whole blood both pre-hospital and uh, in hospital. So it's a very exciting uh, concept, and we, we hope something that we can solve in the next five years. So next up is Caroline Leach, who's a, a consultant in emergency medicine and pre-hospital medicine in England, and she gave a talk on pre-hospital amputation. So we in emergency medicine, we like to talk a lot about skills that are quite rare in our jobs, but worth knowing. And this is probably one of the rarest, but it was still very interesting to hear how it should be done and what to think about should that situation ever arise. Hello, my name's Caroline. I'm a consultant in emergency medicine working in Coventry in the UK. And Caroline, uh, you were speaking at the trauma session and you were talking about amputations, which is something I've never actually personally done. But I, I think uh, the kind of priority of your talk or one of the main points of your talk was about being prepared for this rare thing that you may have to do at some point in your life, but you're not likely to do very often. So do you mind just for our listeners just giving a few kind of take home messages from that talk? So the truth is, actually, I've never performed an amputation. That's how rare it is. Um, but there was a case back in the UK in 2007 um, that made me think, as a pre-hospital doctor, did I have the skills to perform amputation? And if I was in a very unusual situation, so if there's a patient in flood water or a patient very trapped in a vehicle, were there any other methods that we could try and use, um, perhaps using some fire service equipment? So I think the first thing really is how do we as practitioners maintain competency in the face of rarity and that's true for a lot of procedures so I'd say surgical airway is actually quite rare um, fortunately and things like resuscitative hysterotomy. Um, in the UK unfortunately thoracotomy is now more common um, but they're the sorts of procedures where you know how do you maintain your skills when you're not performing it on a regular basis. Um, I'm lucky that I can run a cadaveric skills lab in the UK and so that's one way of practicing the skill but you've got to make it um, a realistic scenario as well and so one of the things I was talking about is lots of people know how to put a tourniquet on but would you be able to put a tourniquet on a patient if they were in uh, an RTC in a very confined space where you can't see what you're doing properly and so when you're training you should be using those sorts of scenarios rather than your oh yeah I can put a tourniquet on in an open room. So um, there's sort of three indications really that we might need to perform a pre-hospital amputation. So the first one would be a patient normally trapped in an RTC who is deteriorating, becoming peri-arrest and you think that by the time you uh, can get them out then they're not going to make it so you feel that you need to amputate them in order to save their life. 
The second one is a scene safety emergency. So uh, the patient's in rising flood water, the vehicle's on fire, there's a chemical incident. And the third scenario would be more in a natural or man-made disaster where actually you are trying to get access to the living and need to amputate limbs of the dead to do that. Talking about the sort of equipment you need. So the traditional um, guillotine amputation that we're performing um, just to say, when this is not a cosmetic procedure, we're not going for a flap, we're going for a straight through cut as quick as you can. So if there's fracture sites in the limb, you're going to aim for those because that's going to take away a lot of time having to cut through bone. The uh, equipment you'd normally use, you're going to need to sedate the patient with ketamine. You're going to need to use a commercial tourniquet, um, obviously tightened, and that's going to be able to tell you how much sedation you might need to give the patient as well. Then you can use a scalpel for the skin and most people I know that have been involved in amputations say that you need more than one scalpel. They blunt really easily. Paramedic shears to cut the muscle and the soft tissue and then normally you'd use a jiggly saw with a wire for the bone. Once you've got the patient out you're going to need to do some very rapid hemorrhage control so check the tourniquet is tight. Use some artery forceps to the large vessels use some hemostatic gauze and wrap the stump in emergency bandage and then obviously go on to do your resuscitation and um, probably that patient's going to be RSI'd and go to a major trauma centre. And you mentioned that you are very lucky enough to have a great cadaveric workshop. Would you like to give a shout out? You're running some courses on this type of stuff. Oh, yes. <laughs> so, yeah, so it's the uh, West Midlands Emergency Surgical Skills course. Um, you can find it on Google. And on our pre-hospital course, uh, we run surgical cricothyroidotomy, thoracostomy, thoracotomy. Uh, we do easy IO practice, humeral mainly, and uh, lateral canthotomy. So, yeah, that's available for people as a commercial course to come along to if they'd like to. So Reboa has been one of these topics that has been quite hotly debated on social media over the past few years. It's not something I know a lot about. It's not available in my practice. Um, so it was interesting to hear from Justin Bereda, who is an anaesthetist and pre-hospitalist from Norway. And him and his team are at the forefront of research into its use in non-traumatic cardiac arrest. So here he is just discussing some of their work. Yeah, okay. So um, Reboa is basically uh, you inflate a balloon in the uh, aorta. And um, in medical cardiac arrest, um, the, the whole point of the procedure is to... Um, to down prioritize uh, the lower body and you uh, centralize hemodynamics and, and, and prioritize the heart and the brain. And um, that's really uh, fairly easy, um, the physiology behind it. And um, uh, there's a lot of um, animal studies and all these clinical studies uh, supports the, the idea that you can centralize hemodynamics by, by um, occluding the aorta. Um, do, do you mind just um, giving us a little bit of a guide about about what you guys are up to? Because you're you're kind of quite into this at the moment. Yeah, so we are, we are the first um, uh, observational study. It's an intention to treat study, and the first one in the world to to do this on in the pre-hospital setting. So this is out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, non-traumatic, and um, so we have we have trained our uh, physicians uh, from the Norwegian Air Ambulance. Uh, in the central part of Norway and uh, so we trained them in a structured four-step training program and um, right now we're doing a, a feasibility and a safety study uh, and we have performed the procedure eight times now so we are uh, smack down in the middle of the 
pilot project. And just to keep it very, very simple, this is probably my last question. Um, can you just describe how that would work, kind of logistically? So describe a scene. So you arrive on scene. Yeah. So it? so you you are you arrive on scene and you have uh, some kind of first responders there, ambulance crew or fire department or whatever, and um, um, the air ambulance, the HEMS crew, they will. Um, establish ACLS, Advanced uh, Cardiopulmonary Life Support, and uh, intubate the patients and put them on a compression, chest compression machine and and um, uh, administer all the, the IV drugs. And, um, and then the physician will tell the team that we need to um, uh, do the Reboa. And the um, helicopter doctor and the helicopter paramedic then will proceed to do the procedure. And it takes about 10, 12 minutes to perform the procedure from, and that is from decision time and to the aorta is occluded. And while this is going on, uh, the ambulance crew or the first responders or whatever, whoever is there, they will uh, do the ACLS. And what sort of benefits have you seen so far or what, what benefits have been described in the literature? Um, I can't give you all the juicy details because this is unpublished material, but uh, we see um, a dramatic increase in, in ROSC. And um, we have s survivors, uh, but it's very not likely to have survived uh, without this balloon. Uh, and that is um, extraordinary. So one of the recent memorable papers in emergency medicine and critical care was the TTM trial which was looking at hypothermia post-cardiac arrest. And the TTM trial showed that there was no difference in outcome between those cooled to 33 degrees and those cooled to 36 degrees. And the principal investigator of that trial was Nicholas Nielsen. And I managed to get a few minutes to speak with him to summarise his talk, kind of discussing what's happened since the trial and what they're working on at the moment. What I tried to do today was to uh, uh, mainly go back these five years since uh, uh, since the publication of the TTM trial and summarizing what we actually showed in the trial that uh, with this dose response uh, finding trial uh, comparing 33 to 36 we could not demonstrate any differences in the survival and not in any of the neurological functional tests that we performed or quality of life and that we in subgroups of this quite large trials uh, have not been um, uh, able to demonstrate any, any significant uh, findings in uh, terms of benefit for either 33 or 36. So it was a very neutral result from the, uh, from the TTM trial. Um, this has been implemented into the guidelines and the guidelines has also caught up with a much higher level of uh, evidence that's required to, to give a firm recommendation. So the old evidence for hypothermia has been downgraded and our trial has not really helped uh, to uh, define how to treat cardiac arrest patients in terms of hypothermia uh, when the patient arrives in the hospital. Uh, and if we look at the, uh, how uh, hypothermia and temperature management is delivered today in, uh, in the world, we can see it's a very scattered picture, uh, picture with uh, patients uh, giving, uh, getting the traditional 33 degrees, those uh, getting 36 according to the TTM trial, uh, and 
all kinds of in-between temperatures and also no temperature control at all. So it's a, it's a very diffuse picture uh, and we think with that situation we are in a situation of a clinical equipoise where we can again challenge the whole concept and uh, do the phase three trials that we probably should have done already 2005 following on the Bernard and the Hawker trial from 2002 that demonstrated effect in small numbers. You can look at those as phase two trials and now we're performing a phase three trial in uh, almost 2,000 patients in 17 countries, uh, above 60 hospitals uh, where we compare rapid cooling to 33 degrees with normothermia where we only introduce uh, temperature management if the patient starts to have a fever then we will lower that to normothermia. And one of the delegates asked you a very interesting question right at the end and that was what would you prefer if, if God forbid that you needed or you were in this situation? Do you have any strong feelings yet? What, what would be your preferred management? No, I've been thinking about that question quite a lot and I thought about that already before the TTM1 trial. Uh, and I'm actually very unsure whether it has an effect or not. So my uh, answer to that question is that if it happens, I want to be randomized yeah. to, to the trial. <laughs> yeah, because you mentioned there at the end, an interesting thing is that people who are getting the hypothermia are probably getting more attention generally. And whether it's that, that's having a difference. So th those are hard things to kind of decipher, aren't they? Yeah, it was an, actually a very interesting editorial to uh, one of these uh, survey or registry papers from the United States. Uh, the, the, the paper that was in uh, critical care medicine, if I'm not incorrect, uh, or no, it was in JAMA Open. Uh, it demonstrated that it was a more scattered picture and less patients got temperature management in the United States today. Uh, more patients had a fever. And the editorial written by David Cedar and Richard Riker and Theresa May uh, really uh, discussed this topic that we have seen uh, uh, improvement in uh, outcome during the last two decades. Uh, it was maybe an effect of the, the increased interest that the cardiac arrest population has uh, gotten after the Bernard and the Haka trials from 2002. That was like a magnificent turning point and the interest from the community, the research community or the clinical community was that cardiac arrest patients got more attention. Um, and I think the Hawthorne effect should not be um, dismissed. I think it might be a very strong factor to improve outcomes. And that is a sad uh, effect of the TTM trial if the interest in the cardiac arrest population is diminished due to the findings of the trial. But we hope that more evidence in the end will get the patient the best uh, care. And so we move from induced hypothermia to that caused by avalanches. And we were very fortunate to hear Herman Brugger speak on the topic. He's a GP and emergency physician from Italy. And he is the world authority on avalanche research and survival, having spent many, many years working in mountain rescue and also researching this difficult to research topic. He admits himself that the numbers are very low. The conditions are very difficult. 
But this is what he has discovered through his many years working on the subject. Yeah, so um, from our statistics, the overall mortality of a person who is involved in an avalanche and who triggered an avalanche is 25%, so more or less less than, uh, less than 25 But the risk factors are, first of all, the grade of burial. If you are not buried, so the survival rate is quite high. It is uh, higher than 90%. But if you are completely buried, so you are uh, with your head under snow and are not able to breathe or you ha are able to breathe, but you are completely covered by snow, then the mortality rate increases uh, significantly to more than 50%. So only uh, every second uh, avalanche triggerer survives if he is completely buried. So this is the most important factor for survival. And the second, if you are not able to stay on the surface, uh, it is the duration of complete burial. In the first 18 minutes, the chance of survival is very high. It is higher than 90%, but then survival drops to 30% within a few minutes. And this is the, the cause is asphyxiation. So most of the avalanche victims um, die from as asphyxia. It's about three quarters of all uh, victims. Only those who can breathe under snow, they have a better survival and they can, uh, they can survive up to one, two, three maximum hours. And uh, if they have a connection to the outside, even much longer, uh, up to 48 hours. This is the record in history. So these are the, the main risk factors. And one thing I picked out is, uh, which I wouldn't have thought of, I don't w work or live in a kind of very snowy environment, but actually the density of the snow can have an impact as well. Isn't that right? There was a, a disparity or a difference between Canada and Switzerland and, and that you thought right. that was the difference in the snow. Yes. So the snow density at the beginning of our studies was as side questions. So not a primary endpoint, but we have seen that there are differences in hypoxia in relation to the quality of snow. And in the last years, uh, we have performed a study which was focusing specifically on the snow quality. And we have seen that the higher the density, the higher the lack of oxygen, of course. And this was expected. But uh, what was new is that uh, at a very low density of snow, we have an increase in CO2. So we don't know why this happens. But this may also help to survive because uh, CO2 increases the drop in temperature. So it hastens the cooling and the cooling rate increases. And that's positive for survival because uh, the cooler you are, the less oxygen you consume. And uh, so you can survive also an, an avalanche uh, burial without any neurological sequelae. And you also then um, told us about four key prognostication factors for, I guess, chances of survival. Would it be possible for you to go through those four for me? Yes, this was a, a systematic review together with Jeff Boyd from Canada. And uh, we have seen that, first of all, the um, duration of burial 
is uh, a significant uh, prognostic factor. But also the patency of the airway and uh, new was the serum potassium and now the serum potassium and the core temperature these two parameters are the key parameters to select patients who are survivable survivable so uh, who can be resuscitated and rewarmed with uh, success by extracorporeal rewarming and the new uh, guidelines they respect these two um, parameters first of all so a uh, threshold of 8 millimole per liter serum potassium and uh, 30 centigrades of core temperature. These are the cutoff points for uh, extracorporeal rewarming of uh, avalanche victims in cardiac arrest. I would say if uh, a uh, avalanche victim which is completely buried is found with an air pocket, so this is a space an airspace in front of mouth and nose, no matter how small. This is a very positive sign, a positive prognostic indicator. And these people should be taken seriously and uh, never give, out, give up hope in these patients, rewarm these patients. This is the main message. So if there is an airspace in front of mouth and nose, this is a clear sign that uh, the victim has, was able to breathe when he was buried by the snow. Altogether, in the last uh, decades, maybe the mortality has not increased, uh, in spite of the increase of the users. So we have a lot of uh, uh, ski tourers, off-piste skiers, um, who take the risk of an, uh, risk of an avalanche. And there are m much more people exposed, but the mortality rate remained equal over five decades, the last five decades. That means that our measures and prevention measures and also therapeutic measures, they did work in the last uh, years. And finally, time for something a little bit different. This was actually the last talk of the entire conference and it was a great way to finish, something a little bit unusual, a little bit thought-provoking. And our next speaker will introduce himself, but he's worked with NASA and the European Space Agency. Thinking about all of the medical considerations for a manned mission to Mars. Hi, I'm Mathieu Komarowski. I'm an intensive care consultant, anesthesiologist as well, uh, working in London and a senior lecturer at uh, Imperial College London. I used to work at the European Space Agency for uh, a year and a half and also uh, collaborated with a few folks at the NASA Human Research Program uh, in, in Houston. And... Um, it's it's a bit of a of a of a, of a hobby, but I think the the, the the all those questions that are how how do we provide medical care optimal medical care given the constraints of a space mission is 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 a is a very stimulating uh, uh, topic, and I certainly think that we should. Uh, we should be pushing more for uh, for more presence uh, of, of of medical specialists uh, in in the field of space medicine. And for those who just have probably never really thought about this topic, could you just give some of the kind of considerations that you've had to give to a manned mission to Mars? What sort of medical problems do you expect or anticipate them encountering? Yeah, of course. So currently the plan for, uh, for, for a mission to Mars by, by NASA would be a 900-day mission with 500 days on the surface of Mars, uh, possibly for a crew of four to six people. So um, it, it means being extremely remote from, from any, any possible help, meaning complete crew autonomy. And then basically the fact that you're exposed to such an extreme environment uh, can 
generate the onset of some medical conditions that are completely unique to, to, to the space environment. Uh, and this, this comes on top of every, every other medical condition that we know about, you know, trauma, sepsis, uh, cardiovascular diseases. Those, those people are going to be, you know, middle-aged men. They are, they are at risk of cardiovascular diseases, uh, cancer, and, and so on. Uh, anything can happen. But in terms of specific space-specific conditions, uh, it's extremely interesting. After a few weeks in space, your, your cardiovascular system becomes deconditioned. So uh, that's one thing. After six months, uh, it is possible that you won't be able to stand up when, when you land on Mars. Bone loss, uh, uh, after six months in weightlessness, you, you can reach levels of uh, loss of bone mineral density that will expose you to osteoporotic fractures. Exposure to radiation, when you're out, uh, outside of uh, the, the vicinity of Earth, you're not protected by the magnetosphere and, and Earth atmosphere. Uh, so the risk of acute radiation sickness is, is, is very real uh, and some people say that we would need we would have we'd need the capability to do a stem cell transplants uh, uh, in the in the spacecraft uh, what else exposure to uh, micro meteorites uh, or you know space debris and so on Sorry, you also mentioned uh, about sepsis. I, I didn't think, I would have thought they would have created a very sterile environment. Mm. I didn't realize until you, you said it during your talk that actually there's an increased risk of infection in space. Can you give me some examples of why that is? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, first of all, we, there is evidence that the immune system is, is depressed uh, in, in space for, for various reasons, but chronic stress is probably, pro probably uh, uh, to, to be incriminated. And then um, there may be evidence that new germs can... Uh, appear on, on the ISS every so often on the filters of the ISS when they get sampled we discover new bacterial strains that we had never seen before uh, w w you know which poses the problem of how, how our body how our, our immune system is going to react to those germs how our antibiotics are, are going to work if, if, if they're going to work at all and then the simple fact that you live in a very closed very um, uh, tiny and closed environment with every, where everything recirculates water, air uh, increases the risk of infection. You can also think of float, floating particles in weightlessness that are potentially contaminated yeah, will, that you will be inhaling. So you, you raised, I think a large part of your talk was about the, the ethical problems that will arise. You know, at what point is it futile to carry on? And it will obviously be less than what would be uh, considered in, in, on, on Earth. But is that still a debate that's raging? You know, at what? How will we determine when enough is enough, and it's mm. just impossible to continue? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, ethical questions are found everywhere in medicine, but uh, the exposure to such an extreme environment poses very unique challenges. Think about someone getting very, very sick early on during the mission. What would you do? Would you would you use all the consumables you have to try to save that person's life at the risk of putting everyone else at risk uh, for the rest of the mission? Uh, there, there, there is a possibility that that. You know, palliation might might be uh, might be warranted uh, earlier than than what we would do on Earth. Simply, simply for the sake of trying to save everyone's life. So many, many thanks to our speakers. I think my main take-home points this week are: number one, try to resuscitate your patient prior to intubation. Consider hypovolemia, severe acidemia and hypoxia and try to normalise these conditions as best as you can prior to pushing the drugs. Number two, in terms of resuscitating hemorrhagic shock, in an awake patient, it's probably fair to give blood products until the patient responds or has some sort of evidence of brain perfusion. And if they're intubated or ventilated, aim for a systolic blood pressure around about 90 systolic. You could tolerate 
a little bit lower in the young person and maybe aim for a little bit higher in the older person. Number three, should you ever have to perform a pre-hospital amputation, this is an emergency procedure. You're not aiming for a flap, rather just a straight cut through. Aim for fracture sites and limbs as this will reduce the time required to cut the bone. You will need to sedate the patient with ketamine, use a commercial tourniquet, scalpel for the skin and you may need more than one, trauma shears to cut muscle and soft tissue, and then a jiggly saw with a wire should you need to go through bone. Remember when you take the patient out, you will need to ensure rapid hemorrhage control. So make sure the tourniquet is tight. You may require artery forceps for large vessels and then hemostatic gauze and emergency bandage on the stump. And finally, number four for avalanche victims. There are four main prognostication factors for survival. Number one is the duration of burial. Number two is patency of airway. So if there is an air pocket in front of the mouth and nose, then this indicates that the patient was able to breathe after burial. And this is a positive sign. So Herman would recommend rewarming these patients. And then after that, serum potassium of 8 and core temperature of 30 degrees are now standard cutoffs for extracorporeal rewarming. So many, many thanks again to our speakers. Please visit stmungos-ed.com for the show notes as well as lots of other additional resources for your enjoyment. Please feel free to leave some feedback. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Many, many thanks again for listening and take care. Oh,